Welcome to the Doggy Dojo Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Light, a Los Angeles-based dog trainer on a quest to become worthy of the title Sensei of the Doggy Dojo. Today's episode is something I think every single person with a dog should listen to. I think it's the most important issue in dog training at the moment. Does method matter? Spoiler alert, yes! Yes, it does. I'm talking about the difference between positive reinforcement or rewards-based training method versus a method that includes punishment, aversives, and what sometimes is called balanced training methods. It can be really confusing, so I got the most amazing guest to help us sort through it. She is a PhD, a certified applied animal behaviorist, certified professional dog trainer, and an award-winning author of six books about canine training and behavior, including her most recent, Treat Everyone Like a Dog, How a Dog Trainer's Worldview Can Improve Your Life. She blogs for TheBark.com and TheWildest.com, writes the animal column for the Arizona Daily Sun, and is an adjunct professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at Northern Arizona University. I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Karen London. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Susan. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're here to talk about why methods matter in dog training. We're hoping to advocate the use of positive reinforcement or reward-based training, not just by saying you should do it, but talking about the why and the how. I feel like a lot of people turn to aversive or punishment and training out of misinformation, desperation, or frustration. Too many people have been using these techniques for too long for them to just disappear, but I hope we can lay out a reasoned argument backed by evidence why you should stick to reward-based methods. Now, terminology and buzzwords are ever-evolving and sometimes confusing or purposely misleading, so we're not going to get really hung up on words, but I want to start our discussion with some definitions and lay the foundation for what we mean when we compare methods and techniques. So uh, I would like to start by defining the four quadrants for everybody. And the four quadrants of behavior in terms of uh, training and learning theory are so important because they really lay out all the different ways that we can influence behavior. So positive reinforcement, which is the one that I think most people think of when they think of training dogs, means that the dog's behavior leads to something good. So the dog does something we like. We give them something that makes them glad they did it, which makes them more likely to do it. So you can kind of think of positive reinforcement making the dog say, yay, like that was worth doing. Um, positive punishment is what most people tend to think of when they think of punishment. That means that the dog's behavior makes something bad happen. Like they jump up at the counter and somebody yells at them and then they don't like that, so they don't do that again. So, And some positive punishment can be really cruel. It's all aversive, but it can mm. be cruel. And so that's why I tend to think of positive punishment as ouch. Like if someone did something really, really physically mean to the dog, it would make them say ouch. Yeah. Um, negative reinforcement is when the dog's behavior um, causes something bad to stop. So if somebody were holding the dog's leash really tight and then the dog relaxed, then they would have more freedom. So it offers them relief from something that's bothering them. That's negative reinforcement. And, and negative. You can think of like a prong collar. Yeah. That. 
a prong collar works in that category. Or for humans, um, when we put our seatbelt on, the buzzing seatbelt sound stops. That's to me the easiest human example of, <laughs> of negative reinforcement. It's like, I'll do anything to make that horrible sound stop. Actually trying to get babies to stop crying is based on negative reinforcement a lot too. It's like, what do I have to do to make this stop? That's oh. negative reinforcement and offers relief. Um, and then negative punishment is that the dog's behavior causes something good to stop. So they're doing something, say, and they're eating treats out of your hand, and then they accidentally get your hand, you know, with little crocodile teeth, and then we remove the treats. And I think of the negative reinforcement as sort of making the dog go, oh, shoot, <laughs> I mm-hmm. wish I hadn't done that. It went away. So I, I tend to think of it as um, sort of yay, ouch, relief, and shoot are my four quadrants. And in the positive ones are something that you add in. Positive reinforcement, you add treats. Positive punishment, you add something mean. Neg- um, and then the negative ones, you're removing something away. And reinforcement makes something more likely to happen in the future, the behavior, and punishment makes something less likely to happen in the behavior, in terms of the behavior. Yeah, absolutely. So when we say reinforcement drives behavior, we're saying what gets reinforced gets repeated. That's that's the basic of, of a lot of our, when we're saying positive reinforcement, we want to reinforce the things we want to see repeated. But we're here mostly to talk about what people tend to focus on, which is punishing what they don't want the dogs to do. Um, and yes, so there's, it's confusing because there's negative punishment and there's positive punishment. We're mostly talking about positive punishment um, here. And because pu- the definition of punishment just means that what you've punished them for is less likely to be repeated. Um, it's not always our choice what a dog finds punishing or a person finds punishing. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Um, If, say, a child comes up and hugs a relative, um, which is a behavior that most of us would like our children to do if they're comfortable doing it, and that relative pinches their cheeks, that's a punishment, but the relative probably doesn't mean it that way. Kids don't generally like to have their cheeks pinched. I know I didn't, and it made me less likely to want to hug relatives. But it wasn't that that was actively being done as punishment. It just functioned as that. Just like in dog training, if you call your dog to come and then either leash your dog up or pat your dog on the head to generally unliked consequences, that's actually punishing your dog and making it less likely that the behavior you want coming when called happens. Um, So we don't necessarily mean those things as punishment, but if it's punishing to the dog, if it's a consequence that makes what they just did that caused that to happen less likely to happen, then it is positive punishment, whether we meant it that way or not. And hopefully we're not ever purposely trying to use it, but sometimes just in interaction socially with our own or other species, there are punishing things that happen. Yeah, absolutely. So that's something to really... Uh, keep in mind as we're going through this whole thing, if you're saying, oh, that's not a punishment or that is a reward, if your dog's not repeating what you've rewarded them for, they don't find it rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. It's so true. And I mean, I think when we talk about reinforcement, and by that we mean positive reinforcement, driving behavior, we're saying that if our dog receives as a consequence something they like, they're going to be more likely to do that behavior. But the consequence is always relative to the individual. So if you have a dog that you know doesn't like squeaky toys and you offer them a squeaky toy, it's not reinforcing. If someone offers me mint candy, it's not reinforcing because I don't <laughs> like peppermint. So they might mean it well and I'd appreciate the effort, but that's about it. it isn't, I'm not like, yay, I'll do that for more peppermint candy in the future because I don't like it. Yeah, 
Absolutely. But let's talk about, so that those are times that we're sometimes punishing our dogs without intending to, but uh, we're really here to talk about the times that people are punishing their dogs, positive punishment on purpose to get them to stop the things that they don't want them to do. So let's talk about, you'll just run down the list of when we say positive punishment, uh, what are the most common forms used in dog training? Well, um, just to be clear, I, my dog training is about positive reinforcement. I certainly have clients come to me that have been using punishment. I just want to be clear. That's not something I ever intend to use. I don't use it um, for reasons that I'm sure we'll be getting into, but it's really hard on the relationship and it's not kind. Uh, But uh, the the common, most common things that I think people do are they yell at their dog. You know, they, Mm. they, I mean, a lot of dogs will cower and get distressed. And even though it's not a physical punishment, it's distressing to a lot of dogs, depending on their personality more or less so, but generally distressing to dogs. Um, People will also um, give like a leash jerk or a leash pop, which is Mm. painful and and unpleasant and startling and scary to dogs. They might make a really loud noise, like throw something that is really, you know, loud, like just, you know, like a, a can, um, or, yeah. um, a shoe. I was shoe. literally taught a, sh- a can full of nickels, like a shaker can to like, just shake the can of nickels at them. Yeah. Many years ago, that was very yep. common. It's become yeah. less so, but it's not totally gone yet. Um, people will use, um, you know, like a, a choke collar to, to hurt mm. their dog. And then some people will actually physically, you know, hit or kick their dog. That is Oof. not very common. I mean, I, I, yeah. I don't have clients telling me they've been advised to do that or that they do that. And I don't see that, but once in a blue moon with some very upset person at a park and it's just, you know, heartbreaking. Absolutely. But I think yelling and like, uh, like a leash pop pulling really hard on the leash, jerking the leash, um, are the two most common. Yeah. And the ones that everybody used to think were, was really innocuous, like rolling up a newspaper and bopping them with it or rubbing their nose in pee that they peed on the carpet, those kinds of things. Um, those are also just outdated, positive punishment, I think. Uh, But yeah, beyond just the popping, which you could do on a flat collar, choke collar, prong collar, and shock collars, which are lovingly called e-collars these days. uh, Right. For electronic. Yeah. And I mean, I um, I live in the United States, but certainly there are many countries and I don't know the exact list, but those are actually- I have the list. Oh, I'm so glad. collars. Yep. They're banned. A lot of places have banned shock collars. It hasn't happened in this country, um, but it certainly is indicative of the dangers and harm that they can cause, that there mm-hmm. are many countries who are just, you know, they were just illegal there for, and yeah. for good reason. Denmark, Germany, Switzerland, Slovenia, Austria, and then parts of Australia and Quebec in Canada have uh, outlawed shock collars. Excellent. Yeah. So, yeah, so these are what we're talking about. These are the things that we don't personally use. And again, when I say I was taught to use a shaker can, that was when I took my certification from Animal Behavior College. This is literally like, you know, they taught us the four quadrants and they're like, oh, you should try this first. But if you need to, here are these methods. And so they were actually teaching people when they're certifying dog trainers to use positive punishment in various forms, um, which is a shame. And now I realize kind of how outdated that curriculum is. But I mean, I didn't back then. So that's kind of the problem is these things are not changing with the times. And so some people are using these techniques because they think they work. They think they're not harmful to dogs. So um, I love that we're going to talk about some new research. They finally started doing specific research about the use of these techniques and their consequences with dogs. 
Yeah, I think it's so important. Um, and, and what I think is really exciting is that some of the research is focusing on, you know, um, on different kinds of techniques. Like a lot of the research on showing that it was uh, stressful and painful and damaging to dogs to use, um, to use these kinds of punishments. A lot of them really focused on incredibly, you know, harsh techniques, um, you know, like using shock collars or mm -hmm. using a choke chain. But in a more recent study, they looked at things, they compared, you know, using play and treats versus like yelling, jerking on the leash and forcing dogs into positions, which are also mm. positive punishment. But many people said, oh, well, it's pretty mild. This is a study done in Porto, Portugal. Um, and, um, and the researcher's name is Ana Catarina Vieira de Castro, which I think is such a great name. Impressive. And, um, and, and um, her work, they looked at um, almost 100 dogs, roughly half that were in, being trained in training centers that used play and treats to get the behavior they wanted, and roughly half of them at training centers that did yelling leash pops and then, you know, physically manipulating the dogs into position. And I don't get the feeling they're like slamming them and causing physical pain to the dogs, just to be clear. It was just they were put, putting them into the positions. And then they videotaped these training sessions and they found a whole bunch of interesting things. So they found that the dogs who were punished and that included by forcing them into the, the, the positions they wanted, they showed more signs of stress during training than dogs who are trained with positive methods. Mm -hmm. And that the kind of things that the, the, they looked at very typical measures of stress, stress behaviors like, um, um, like uh, lip licks, yawning, and panting. Mm -hmm. And they found that the dogs who were trained with this punishment were also more frequently in an overall tense state, like their body, bodies were tense. And they showed more yelping and lying on the side or the back, which, you know, can be a, a behavior, an appeasement behavior meant to sort of stop someone from basically bullying them um, mm -hmm. or crouching. Um, and, the, and, and those dogs that were treated, you know, less well like that also had higher levels of cortisol, which is a common level measure of stress than they did at home. So they compared their cortisol levels during training and at home and, and at training, it was more stressful and the dogs trained positively didn't show, um, any differences. Um, and one of the things that I think is so interesting about this study and so important isn't just that the dogs were stressed during training, um, but that it actually affected their outlook on life. And there, there are ways to measure what they consider pessimism or optimism in dogs. And I love this. So they, they, um, this is sort of like a glass half full kind of test. Like do you mm -hmm. view it as glass half full or glass half empty? And, um, so there were 92 dogs in the original study. And then they looked at 79 of, of these dogs and, um, they trained these dogs that if they put a bowl on one side of the room, it would, it had treats or food in it. And if they put it on the other side, it was empty. And so the dogs learn that pretty quickly. They obviously learn like, oh, this is where the food shows up. I'll go there. But if they put a bowl in between it, so they would, the idea was that optimistic dogs would be like, oh, well, maybe that's on the side of the room that has food. And the others might be like, maybe that's on the side of the room that doesn't. Um, and the optimistic dogs, which was far more likely to be the ones that were trained positively, were faster to approach the bowl. And the, the pessimistic dogs approached more slowly. Like they, you know, we, perhaps they were nervous about what may, might be there or they certainly weren't hopeful, as hopeful right. that the, that the food was there. And I think that's, it's pretty cool to show that it affected their whole outlook on life. And also just that, um, that even things like yelling, which I'm not condoning, but you know, it's obviously not as scary and dangerous as like giving them electric shocks, um, mm -hmm. still is very damaging to yeah. the dog's well being and, uh, and to, you know, how they feel about life in general. 
Absolutely. And I think something that stuck out to me from that study was um, this is, they said this was one of the first studies to evaluate um, the effects of training on their welfare outside of training. And they referenced a study from 2001 that had found there was no effect of shock collar on training um, on the dogs having fear or anxiety. But that was based on the dog owner's reports instead of objective tests and animal-based welfare indicators like the one that you're talking about. So um, that's literally asking the owner like, hey, is your dog okay after use the shock collar on him? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And it's like, I think it's a good indication that people don't always understand canine body language enough uh, because what they've done in this study that you're talking about is they videotaped the dogs, they had them look for these indications in their body languages of stress and then, like you said, they put them through this uh, test to determine how they feel. It's just, and they tested their cortisol um, as well. So it's like all these factors, they're not just taking the owner's perspective, but it, it's important to know that sometimes as the owners, you kind of you kind of think these things are okay and they're not doing any damage to your dog. And they are, you're just, unfortunately, you're not uh, in tune enough to see it. You know, it's so true what you're saying that it's very objective measures in this study out of Portugal and many of the other studies were like, they're like, oh yeah, he's fine. And there are two problems that one is, as you say, people might not know that when their dog's yawning, that their dog mm -hmm. is stressed or if their pads are sweating or if their, you know, or their body is the big tense. smile, the big smile, everybody's like, oh, they're smiling. They're so happy. They're stressed. Right. It could be a fear grimace. If the corners of their mouth are pulled really far back, it can be a sign of fear. But since their yep. teeth are showing, but they're not like baring their teeth, it can be confused. And I think another issue with previous studies that did rely on owner assessments of their dogs is that then you can possibly be skewing the, da the data because suppose there's a hundred dogs that they've used e-collars on mm -hmm. and and it's, it's aversive. I think that we all, Absolutely. you know, that you and I both agree on that, mm -hmm. but it might be more aversive to some dogs than others. I mean, some True. dogs might, based on their personality um, and how, you know, high a level they're doing on it, some dogs might not like it, but it might not be catastrophically traumatic for them. And mm -hmm. those owners might keep using them. If you put a shock collar on the dog and the dog shrieks and squeals and defecates mm -hmm. and, you know, hides under the bed for two days, mm -hmm. most people who are not you know, horrible. yeah, horrible, cruel people are gonna be like, this is a problem for my dog. And I do think a lot of people who use these collars and I'm would never want someone to, I'm always opposed yep, to it. Absolutely. I think they don't know. Like someone's yeah. like, oh, I did this with my dog and it worked or this helps or like, oh, you got to do yeah. this. And they do it and maybe they don't feel great about it, but only if their dog gives these really obviously yeah. clear signals of distress that are like heartbreaking for people, um, do they stop? And then some of the others might be like, you know, maybe the dog flinches or the dog whines a little, but then they just kind of take it and it doesn't yeah. mean that it's okay but it means the dog is not illustrating in a very obvious way how horrible it is and then those people keep using it and those might be the ones reporting in the study and but I don't know fine. I'm not saying this did happen in these studies I'm saying there's always that possibility we just don't know those data don't seem that clean to me I agree and also I feel like I've heard again this is uh, from people who are discussing using e-collars and and how great they are is they'll talk about like the levels and they're like, some dogs are hard and you have to really, for instance, I know this was floating around Instagram a while ago of trainers who are putting shot collars around a dog's waist. So like, if your dog really doesn't respond and you sometimes have to take it to another level. I mean, th at that point, you're using the shot collar on their bare skin, like that's much more sensitive to their neck. It's abuse. And I, most people in the community agreed on that. But 
I mean, these are the levels they're taking it up to. They're saying, oh, we're not getting through. It's obviously not hurting. Let's hurt them more until we can get through. I mean, it's, I, it's, I'm off on a tangent, which I didn't want to get off on, but. No, but it's important to understand that, I mean, to really think and empathize with how painful this is to dogs and the fact that people are choosing to cause their dogs pain in the name of training for teaching. um, It's not, um, it's not something that obviously you and I are comfortable with, but it's important to talk about as long as there are people out there who are still doing it. And yeah, there are, there are very few people who are just mean, but most people just really, if we show them a better way and they understand why another way is better, I, I think a lot of people are happier to know that there's a way. I think a lot of people use these, as you, you said earlier on, out of desperation. Yeah. Like something is, there's some behavior of their dogs that is making life very challenging with them or causing conflict in their relationship with other people. And they've got to get it to stop, whether it's barking or eliminating indoors or, you know, and yeah. they, you know, people are just at the end of their rope. I'm yeah. very sympathetic to people that have tried this out of desperation, although I really wish they wouldn't. And what we need to do is hopefully what we're doing a little today is getting more education out there. The more people yeah. know of other techniques and how effective they can be, the more willing they are to, to try them. I don't think there are very many people out there that want to cause their dog pain. I think that's thankfully a yeah. very, very, very small minority, but more people are doing it than actually want to. Yes, because either desperation, which we're going to talk about people who believe that they've tried positive reinforcement and it didn't work. Um, but also just, I think, like you said, misinformation, they don't think it's bad. You know, what's sad is like these videos, I was watching a video, it came up through my feed today of a local trainer using a shock collar for recall. And it's like when the, she's like, you just call it back with the collar. Like she didn't even call the dog to come, didn't even give it a chance. She just like shocked it and it came back. And this, she was showing this video to be like, look, look how well I've trained this dog to come back from 50 feet away without a leash. Right. But I, the problem with, with that, it is, is, it's terrible misinformation. And I feel really sorry for that dog. But when you look at that from a, um, yep. you know, a behaviorist point of view, the person wants the dog to come back. That's what they desire. So when they, you know, hit that whatever knob or switch, or whatever that makes the collar shock and the dog comes back, they are being reinforced that I want my dog to come back. When I do this, that happens. So they themselves are being positively reinforced for it. It's no wonder that they keep doing it Yeah, because it's very cruel to the dog, but the person is getting what they want mm-hmm. without, so, yeah. I mean, obviously they don't, I don't think they necessarily want to hurt their dog, but I don't think that's the part they're thinking of. They're thinking of the dog's behavior yep. and they're getting the behavior they want from their dog. So they keep doing what it, what Absolutely. they've been doing to get that happen. It's, Absolutely. I mean, that's the power of positive reinforcement. It's just that in this case, it's not working for us in the way that we might most desire. Yeah. We have to take a short break. There are links in the show notes to Dr. London's Instagram, Facebook, and to purchase her newest book, Treat Everyone Like a Dog. We'll be right back. So the conclusion of that study that we were just talking about, which is a very recent study, it was published in December 2020. So this is very current research that we're talking about. Results showed that dogs from group aversive displayed more stress-related behaviors, were more frequently in tense and low behavioral states, panted more during training, exhibited higher uh, post-training increases in cortisol levels than dogs in group reward. Additionally, dogs from group aversive were more pessimistic in the cognitive bias task. That's the one you were talking about with the bulls. 
Yes. And that's the cognitive bias task. Then dogs from group reward. Dogs from group mixed. So that uh, they actually found that some of the trainers, when they split these groups apart to do the study, used a little bit of aversive techniques, but far less than the other ones. So they decided to call it group mixed. I We'd probably call it a balanced trainer is the other, again, nomenclature they like to use. Um, so group, so this is one that uses some aversive, but not as much. Group mix displayed more stress-related behaviors, uh, were more frequently in tense states, and panted more during training than dogs in group reward. Furthermore, although groups mixed and aversive did not differ in their performance in the cognitive bias task, nor in cortisol levels, the former displayed more stress-related behaviors and was more frequently in tense and low behavioral states. The findings indicate aversive-based training methods, especially if used in high proportions, compromise the welfare of companion dogs, both within and outside the training context. So that is the result of that study. Do you agree with it? Well, I mean, I've definitely, um, I mean, read that study and found those results. What I think so interesting about it is that the idea that um, the mixed, um, the mixed training mm -hmm. causes issues, I think that's counterintuitive to a lot of people, but it makes sense if you think about not, in addition to the idea that those dogs are receiving aversive, punishing, painful, and scary experiences, they're unpredictable. Mm -hmm. And I think that is very, I mean, I think that's been well documented behaviorally with a number of species that unpredictability causes stress. Yeah. Dogs love patterns. They love pattern, routine, predictability. The one thing I'd like to say just about research is I think that there are many of us, and I would put myself in this group, that long before really good, reliable studies came out and offered strong evidence that aversive techniques, punishment-based methods were bad for dogs. I, I believe that to be true. I knew there weren't a lot mm -hmm. of data, but I just see that when there are people who work with their dogs and they use positive methods and they're not trying to influence behavior with fear or pain, it doesn't defy, you know, common sense or, you know, like imagination that those relationships are stronger and better and that dogs are free to explore and offer behaviors. And that's one of the reasons that it works so much better is that dogs aren't afraid to try something because there's no risk of punishment. Mm, it's um, part of what makes positive training so powerful, so effective, and so good for relationships isn't just the actual power of the positive reinforcement, but actually the absence of punishment, uh, which is yeah. obviously sounds like that's the same thing, but it's actually not. And that's why that one where they, people use, people say, oh, I use, I do positive, I use treats, but if they're also using punishment, it's quite, um, potentially stressful for the dogs. Um, and so I think it's important that we all have, a lot of people have strong feelings about what kind of training methods uh, are best. And it's really nice to see data out there offering strong support for what a lot of people have known for a long time, people who are empathetic and caring and, you know, recognize the dog's value that, that the kind that, you know, it matters to be kind in your training. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. Absolutely. Could not agree more. Um, I guess we're hopeful that the research will sort of sway some of the people that are like heavily entrenched in, in these aversives. And I want to, I can't talk about this without going down some of these, um, arguments for using punishment that I hear all the time, because I, I just want to answer to them so that people understand that it, we're not just sticking our head in the sand. We hear all of these and we're going to talk about why they still don't convince us to use these. So the top one is they work. 
they're like, why shouldn't I use the shock collar? It works. Or the prong collar, you know, that's a big one. You've got a really big dog dragging you down the street and it's really tough to teach them, you know, in their adolescence to walk nicely on the leash. The temptation to throw a prong collar on them is strong. I get it. And a lot of people are like, it works. It works. I put it on it. They walk better. Why can't I do it? So, right. And again, this fits in the idea that it's reinforcing to the person, um, but it doesn't mean it's good for the dog. And I think that the idea that aversive and punishing and painful or fearful methods can work is really important to address because, you know, Skinner showed with his rats in those boxes in the 1950s and, you know, for many years, you can teach things with fear and pain. Oh, yeah. My concern with these techniques isn't that they don't work because there's no doubt that you can teach individuals of just about any of, of any species how to do something or not to do something with fear or pain. I mean, school teachers have, you know, caned children or humiliated them by, give, you know, putting them in the corner with a dunce cap or slapping their hands with a ruler or yelling at them. And just like, unfortunately, dog trainers, similar things dog trainers have done more back in the day, but still some now. You can teach individuals to do things with that, but at what cost? My issue isn't that it doesn't work, but that it's it's bad for the individual's well-being. A dog that's treated poorly in training, it's bad for their well-being, their sense of safety, their self-esteem, mm -hmm. and their connection to the person or people causing these things. It's not good for the relationship. And to me, training and the relationship is this wonderful feedback loop where the better your relationship is, it's easier. the, the easier it is to train them. And the, the better you train them and the more you can communicate with each other and understand what you want, the better the relationship is. And that should cycle in a very positive way. And if within that um, that interaction, there's fear or pain caused by the person to the dog that absolutely obliterates relationship building and all the benefits of that, both for training and for your life together and just enjoyment of one each other of each other. So again, I just can't state strongly enough that my objection to using punishment and training is not that it doesn't work, but that the costs are far too strong to make whatever effect it could have that could be useful for teaching uh, to not to be worth it. Absolutely. So also, I'd like to add to that, uh, because that's the crux of it. In the end, that anybody that believes that you should, whatever hashtag you use, train humane, positive reinforcement, whatever, uh, that's the crux of it, is that it's damaging to your relationship, and that is the big deal. Um, but I would also say that punishment t teaches your dog what you don't want them to do. It doesn't teach them what they want to do. So all it does is shut down behavior. And a lot of behaviors are done from fear. And that's where we see them do the most damage is that if you're shutting down fear behaviors, but the dog is still afraid, then you end up with an aggressive dog because they feel backed in a corner and they, they need to defend themselves because they don't feel safe. So that's a different episode. <laughs> but um, I would say that it, punishment works by shutting down um, behavior. And like you said, you want a dog that has personality that offers you behaviors that's not afraid to try things, as opposed to the dog that's just like, I'm going to sit in this corner so that I don't get whacked. Yeah, it's so true. A lot of times when people see what they're saying is a dog who's not misbehaving, I don't think that's accurate if they've been, you know, punished. It's not so much that they're not misbehaving, it's that they're not behaving. As you say, they're, shut, they're shut down. So yeah, they may not be doing anything problematic, but it might be because they're just not doing anything because anything they do based on their experience offers the risk of being punished. Yep. And so there's not a, a sort of a vibrancy or a, a joyfulness in their actions because there's always that 
apprehension. Yes. So yes, if that's your definition of a well-behaved dog, I mean, that's a little bit of its own problem. I agree. Uh, I think we have a little bit of bad expectation of what we want these animals that we've invited to share our homes and lives to do and not to do. So uh, moving on from that, because again, another episode maybe, um, the other things that people say about it is uh, that they're easier and faster than using positive reinforcement. Yeah, this argument has always befuddled me a little bit because I think that it is very um, difficult to do any kind of training. Um, it it's, takes a lot of skill, and I think that that you can affect behavior very quickly if a dog learns that good things happen when when they when they do a particular behavior, and they seem to be incredibly willing. Uh, to do that. And I don't see where just um, shutting down behavior or just scaring a dog till they essentially freeze is any indication that using that to influence behavior to get what you want is actually easier. Um, I think one of the great things about using positive reinforcement is that it's pretty, um, you, I mean, we all make mistakes where you, you know, you, the dog does something you don't want, and that's right when you drop a treat and they get it, so they get reinforced for something they don't want, you don't want. But I think that that can so easily be overcome. It's like, all right, well, we just have to work on getting the reinforcement timed properly. But if you do some kind of a punishing thing to the dog at the wrong time, that can be incredibly damaging. Um, so I feel like little mistakes in positive reinforcement training are are um, are far easier to recover from, and that's part of part of training. Is you know nobody does it perfectly. Is is fixing a little mm, mistake that yeah. you've made. And I think that's much easier with positive techniques than with aversive oh, ones. You are so right. And that leads me directly into the next one, which is uh, it's not harmful if you, in putting this in quotes, do it right. Um, and this is a big argument that they always say, they're like, oh, well, I know how to do it right. So I apply it correctly um, at the right moment and at the right level. And the dog understands it immediately. And doesn't hurt they just learn i think that's just a big mistake that people have is i don't think unless you've trained as many dogs as as we have and i'm i know you've trained more than i have for sure uh, that you can understand how important timing is and um like you said sometimes we make mistakes and we accidentally our timing's a little off our mechanics are a little off we reinforce the wrong thing but let me promise you also on the other end you are punishing the wrong thing and sometimes you also, the big mistake with punishment is that you don't always decide what the dog's associating with that punishment. Right. And I'm sure there are people that do it in more or less damaging ways. It's all damaging in my opinion, but you know, some could be worse, just like any kind of, you know, negative experiences all of us have, or, or, you know, heaven forbid, really abusive experiences. There are degrees of it, um, but it's all harmful. And I think that it's important to remember when people talk about, like you say, they don't talk about a shot collar, they call it an e-collar, or they, mm -hmm. they talk about like, you know, like, um, you know, it's They're a prong collar, but vibrate. it doesn't really choke. Right. You're going to use the vibrate. It's all based on fear and pain. And if you're mm -hmm. only using vibrate in the, in the training, vibrate is often used to predict the shock. The vibrate is causing fear because it mm -hmm. previously has predicted a shock. Any kind of training or education that's based on fear and pain has the potential to be hugely damaging to that individual and to the relationship. 
sure, some people have done some of these techniques and it hasn't been as damaging as what some other dogs have done. But that's like saying, well, I was only in a car accident that, you know, smashed up the front of my car. Like I know people that have been in car accidents where their front and their back was smashed up. So mine's not a problem. It just, it defies logic just because there are things that are more damaging or some people have done it more um, cruelly or caused more pain or more damage doesn't mean that the less pain or the less damage is not damaging or painful or fearful because it is. Uh, so that, yes, there are degrees, but it, there, it, it's never that it's not damaging if it's done right. It's that it can be more or less damaging depending on how intense it is in the individual of the dog. But it, it's, I mean, it's very alarming to see any dog being treated cruelly like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, which brings us to um, Lima. So Lima stands for least intrusive, minimally aversive. And it's something that, you know, I just got my CPD TKA. I had to sign it and file it with, uh, with them to say that I'll follow LEMA standards. Basically, it's a ladder of uh, behavior modification that starts with, you know, veterinary care and management, positive reinforcement. But it does say in LEMA, it's like, oh, you know, if that doesn't work, you can keep going and try, you know, all the way up to positive punishment and all the steps in between. Um, and that's another thing. Again, I was taught when I got my first certification, the ABCDT, it's like, oh, you know, try that first. And if it doesn't work, it work, then go to the punishment and try that. Uh, there's a problem with that way of thinking. I mean, I like at least that they're trying to push people to start positive, And I think that's where all of this, it was a first step, but, um, positive reinforcement can work. You shouldn't have to go up the ladder to any of the other ones. Right. And what I like about this general idea is that it does acknowledge that there's, there's um, risk uh, with, with aversive or intrusive kinds of things. But yeah, I mean, when you're, when you're teaching and training, um, I don't see any reason to, to, to move from the you know, from the positive. I do think the idea of Lima is beneficial if like, suppose you've got an emergency health situation with a dog, like a dog that is, you know, choking or a dog that um, needs to be moved immediately to get to veterinary care. And you may do something that causes them distress. Um, You you may just sometimes have to like lift them up, carry them in the car, even though it hurts them because you have to do it. So in that context, but that's not teaching or training that's just handling emergency. So that's, I know that's not how Lima's generally been intended, but that's where I see the value of it. So why, why did we ever get started using punishment in training? You know, it's such a great question. And I feel like, and I think I have views that might differ from other people's, but I feel like we started training dogs the way, um, you know, people worked with their horses and the way people taught children in school with a certain amount of force for authority. Um, And of course that blends into the idea when we talk about authority with dogs, with sort of mistaken ideas about alpha theory and dominance, Mm -hmm. um, you know, based on some, you know, ideas that came from other canines that we no longer think hold true for frankly, even those canines, much less the domestic dog. Yeah. I think that's a good point because a lot of the things that clients say to me, uh, you know, one, it's like, oh, they should do it for not treats. They should just do it because they want to make me happy. Or, you know, they have to, you know, I don't know. It just, it amazes me sometimes. I do think people think they need to teach their dogs to be good, but 
dogs don't have morality. Dogs are not moral creatures. What we call good uh, just means they're doing things that we like. So they're not empirically good to that dog. We just re we need to reinforce the things we like and they'll do it more. You know, and I think that's true even in moral species, to be honest. Like even in humans, I think a lot of what makes individuals moral is a, a social connectedness, a caring about what the group thinks. So a lot of people do the right thing because what other people think of them matters. That's their a currency that's really valuable. And I, I well, I, I, it's hard to say like what moral means. It's more of a metaphysical kind of idea. <laughs> but I, I think that dogs, uh, a lot of dogs are very responsive to, uh, of course, treats and toys and getting chew things and getting to go outside. But I think they also are very connected to the idea of being like loved and cared for and approved of. Um, but I think sometimes they don't always know so much what they're approved of if it doesn't come with these sort of other more tangible payments. Yeah, absolutely. So it comes a lot from, you know, the alpha theory, like you said, in, um, when we were studying a captive wolf pack and, you know, God bless them. I'm sure they were doing the best uh, research at the moment that they could. But a lot of the things that came out of that study that are still influencing people doing dog training today um, we've known for a really long time, uh, don't affect dogs for two reasons. One, like you said, they're not as closely related as canines as we originally thought. So maybe it doesn't matter as much what wolves do. And two, since that was a captive pack and now we've studied wild packs, we understand that the data that we gathered from that pack as far as behavior, it's not really relevant yeah, no, it's true. And I mean, even researchers on that study have, you know, sort of have um, have um, said that they sh that, that we they they don't think that the work that they did that showed the sort of specific ideas about alpha and dominance should be applied, and that it has been you know misconstrued and misinterpreted and misapplied. It's not the kind of guiding principles that the original researchers, which I think these these studies were published like in the 1960s, it's mm -hmm. not what you know what they think either. Um, so I think that is really important. And I mean, this is how science works. It's what makes it exciting. We like learn things and we act on them and then we learn new things and then we adjust how we act. So I think it's all part of a really important scientific process. Like what we know changes as we learn more and more studies are done and we act accordingly. I mean, I've been training dogs for 25 years and I do things differently now than I used to. I use play a lot more than I used to. I found that to be really powerful. I'm much more generous in my reinforcements because I've learned how important it is to use really good, high quality and copious amounts of reinforcement. Um, so, you know, we all change and grow with what we know and learn. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And so um, to wrap that up, I do think I hope the wind is shifting. I really hope that uh, we've convinced some people that, you know, it may seem like because there's a lot of people with a lot of visibility that are doing things differently. But um, I hope that you can see that the people who are looking at the research and looking at, you know, just all the dogs that they're putting their hands on, I'm seeing the damage that these prong collars are doing to scared dogs. And then we have a lot of work to do to build up that dog's confidence afterwards, you know? So I hope that we can kind of convince people that this is the way that things sh should go for, um, for the dog's welfare. And um, I wanted to close it with mentioning just, this is fairly new. Um, 
statement, a physician statement that came out by the American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior, and um, basically just saying uh, evidence supports the use of reward-based methods for all canine training. The AVSAB promotes interactions with animals based on compassion, respect, and scientific evidence. Based on these factors, reward-based learning offers the most advantages and the least harm to the learner's welfare. So it says research supports the efficacy of reward-based training to address unwanted and challenging behaviors. There's no evidence that aversive training is necessary for dog training or behavior modification. And uh, I think it's awesome. Yeah, I do too. And it's wonderful to hear the, you know, the um, veterinarians who are board certified in behavior officially saying with a position statement, what certified applied animal behaviorists have been saying, you know, for decades, it's really, I mean, it's, um, it's just so important that it be coming from all sorts of ways that people with dogs will be getting this information. So I was really pleased to see this position statement. And I, I do think things are changing. I feel like more and more people all the time are using positive training methods. I do think, I mean, it's been you know 20 or 30 years that there have been crossover trainers who are changing over. And I just feel like positive training is just a bigger force in society than it ever has. And there's still many people that hopefully will be exposed to these positive methods and, and find them compelling and want to use them instead of aversive ones. I, I do think that the trend has been in the right direction for a long time, and that's exciting. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. Yay. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention before we sign off? Well, I would just say that one thing I think that is so compelling for convincing people to use positive methods is not so much data or hearing about it or information, but actually being able to work with a positive trainer and seeing that it that it works. I think when people are able, people want to be able to have control in a nice way, not a harsh way of their, of their dog's behavior. So they can let them off leash at the park or they can enjoy a walk with them or they can leave them alone in the house without, you know, coming home to like, you know, with their fingers crossed, hoping the house is not a total disaster zone. And if they get the experience working with positive trainers who can teach them how to use these techniques to, to train their dogs uh, so they can enjoy them even more. I think that's what makes, that's what one of the most compelling things is, oh, look, I can, I, I have these powerful positive reinforcement strategies and techniques to help my dog behave how I want him or her to behave. I think that is the most convincing thing for anyone. Thank you, Dr. London, for joining me today. My biggest takeaway from this conversation is that methods matter. And it's not just the use of positive reinforcement in training, but the absence of punishment that makes a dog feel safe. If you're feeling frustrated and feeling like the positive techniques aren't effective, reach out to a qualified positive trainer to help you troubleshoot. Could be a minor timing issue or about finding things your dog finds more reinforcing, but together you can make it work. Thanks for coming to the dojo to learn with me this week. This is your aspiring sensei, Susan Light, signing off. If you'd like to find me, I'm at doggydojopodcast.com or I'm at Susan Light LA on Pinterest, Instagram, and Facebook. The music was written by MacLight. You can find him at MacLightSongwriter.com. If you liked the show, you can support it by subscribing, sharing it with your friends, rating it, and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts. See you in two weeks with another new episode of the Doggy Dojo.